In the book of Luke, he describes the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem at uh, the last week of what would become uh, his earthly life. And in the book of Luke, it says this, he said, As he was drawing near at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And there was no doubt uh, in the mind of the disciples that this was the moment that they had been waiting for because they were well taught and well schooled in regard, to, in regard to the Old Testament. So they would have known this scripture where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of jo- Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on an ass, on a colt, the foal of an ass. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and rivers and from river to the ends of the earth. You find that in the book of Zechariah. The long awaited Messiah had come, the King of Israel. And not just Israel, but as Zechariah says here, the King of all the earth. And in the minds of these disciples, Jerusalem would be the capital city. And from there, he would rule in peace and righteousness. What a day this was. This was the day they had been waiting for. Imagine them as this crowd gathered and as they processed behind Jesus, their hearts pounding because they waited for this day. And their hands must have been sweaty with it. I don't know if you've ever done that. You know, when it, it's sort of when you get just a little bit excited, your hands get a bit sweaty, don't they? Imagine these disciples sort of, you know, heart going like this, sweaty palms, as you might sort of put it, ready for what they thought could have been the moment of battle. How would he do it? Would he whip up this enthusiastic crowd and storm the Roman fortresses that stood before them with their huge red banners and their massive eagles? Would this be the people's revolution? Or maybe that what he would do is, at this moment, as he entered in Jerusalem, would just call down his angels and they would follow him in. So you imagine Jesus on this donkey, the disciples following him, crowds cheering, and then thousands upon thousands of angels from the sky entering into this city. Would this be what it would be like? Or maybe there was all those people that had crossed their path and they thought, yeah, I know what we'll do with them. We will call fire down on them 
And we will rule from Jerusalem. Maybe they thought in the struggle to take Jerusalem and enthrone Jesus as king, would they lose their lives? Would this be not only their greatest day, but would this be their last day? The tension must have been at this moment incredible. The entry into Jerusalem with palm leaves. Palm Sunday, as many people know it. And this previews a a Palm Sunday to come. I like to think of it as perhaps the worship that we've just been involved in is just a, a foretaste, just something of a short, I don't know, even feeble attempt of something. Sorry, guys, I don't mean that that way. But you know what I mean, of something that will come in. They were good, weren't they? But, but something that would come to us in heaven one day. And where one day... All those that have been faithful to the Lord. All those who know Jesus Christ as Saviour. All the millions of people that have gone through time and history. All the nations from all over the world will gather. Changed by Jesus. With their palm leaves in their hand. To bring their salute to Jesus Christ, their Saviour. But now in heaven, imagine an endless sea of eternal green as they wave their palm leaves. Imagine the noise from history's Christians raising a shout to their Saviour in heaven. Singing a song of their own salvation and the salvation brought to them by Jesus. They, with heartfelt love, look towards him. And he, with heartfelt love, looks towards them and thinks, These are the people that I bought with my blood. The day, the entering of Jerusalem. Now, let me take you back a little bit. Let me take you back before that, not the heavenly events, but before to the earthly events. Because in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56, it says this, When the day drew near for him to be taken up, and uh, uh, he set his face towards Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And his his disciples, James and John, saw it and they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and he rebuked them and they went on to another village. In Luke chapter 9, 51 to 56, we actually read how not to do Palm Sunday. This is how not to do it. 
When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face towards Jerusalem. And for Jesus to set his face to Jerusalem meant something different for him than it did to the disciples. For the disciples, this was about Jerusalem. This was about glory. This was about maybe a war. But what would it mean for Jesus? He had a completely different vision in his head. And you do wonder how he carried that vision and how he bore it so long. Because Jerusalem for Jesus meant one thing, and one thing only. It meant his certain death. His certain death. When he set his face towards Jerusalem, he set his face towards death. He was under no illusions either that this would be a reasonable death. No, he wasn't going to have a quick and heroic death. This would be a slow and painful death. In Luke chapter 18, verse 31, it says this, Behold, says Jesus speaking, we are going to Jerusalem. And everything that was written of the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, he will be mocked, he will be shamefully treated and spat upon, and they will scourge him and kill him. But Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I just want to take you something that might be theologically incorrect. There's a pool behind me, and if, you know... I get it wrong, I'm just going to go backwards, okay? So, you know, you can either listen to me or wait for the moment that I just go flying back. I want you to remember when you think of Jesus' resolution to die that he had a nature like yours. The Bible says that he was fully man. So probably, as fully man, he would have shrunk back from pain just like you and I do. It wasn't one of those things that he was thinking, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. It is possible, and this is where, you know, I'm I'm not being blasphemy, but if he had not had the task of being the son of man and coming to die on a cross, it is possible that he could have enjoyed marriage and he could have enjoyed children, but that was not going to be his destiny that he could have had grandchildren, he certainly had friends, he did have a mother, he did have brothers and sisters, but he was setting his face towards Jerusalem. He even had special places like you have, you have those favourite places, don't you, where you go and you think, you know, know, this is one of those times and we just need to go back there and, and enjoy that because it's one of those things that we love so much. Apparently Rupert and Fleur love Chester Zoo. And they go back. To me, an elephant isn't here. There's only one. You know, see an elephant once a year, that's fine by me. But Rupert and Fleur go back every time. Jesus went up in the mountain to spend times with his father because he loved the place and he loved meeting with God, his father. He had special places. And he turned his back on all of this and set his face towards a vicious whipping 
beating, spitting, mocking, crucifixion. That was not easy to do. That was extremely hard. And actually, we do need to use our imaginations to know what it meant for him to give up all that he gave up and set his face towards Jerusalem. I don't know how to begin to describe the motive of why he would do that. Why he would not want to visit again the special place, the friends, the things, the motive. Except that he describes it for us. Why would he set his face towards Jerusalem? This is what he says. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Here's the balance. The balance is death in a particular way. And then on the other side, it's you. And the balance goes down. Jerusalem, you. You. Let me just say that in a different way. Maybe you just... He said... His face towards Jerusalem for you. For you. And if we're to look at Jesus' death merely as some sort of deceit, some setup, maybe as some sort of Sanhedrin plot, Pilate's ignorance, soldiers with spears and nails, well, yes, they are the facts, but it would be very wrong. It would be very wrong. Jesus was not accidentally engaged in some sort of web of injustice and lost his life. The saving benefits of his death for sinners were not an afterthought. God planned it out of love for you and for me. For a people like us, at an appointed time, at an appointed place, he set his face towards Jerusalem. This is what the Bible says. This is what he said. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I willingly, I just think that's mad. I willingly lay my life down for you. You can't get your head around it, can you? That's why Christians worship, because they still can't get their heads around it. I willingly lay my life down for you. So Jesus' journey is our journey. What do I mean by that? Jesus sets out for Jerusalem, and and, uh, in those verses it says this, He sent messengers ahead of him who entered a village of the Samaritans to make it ready for him, but the people would not receive him because his face was set to to Jerusalem. It doesn't really matter whether the rejection is just because Jesus and his companions are Jews and they were Samaritans and they hated each other. It just matters that the rejection that he would do for your and for my sakes has begun has begun. And what matters 
is not really the technicalities of it. It's just the, it's the magnitude of it that matters. James and John asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, Jesus had already named these guys sons of thunder. So they were just, now you've got an idea why. Sons of thunder, I know what we'll do with these Samaritans, we'll burn them. You can see that the pastoral heart hasn't come through yet. But it's beginning. And maybe that's what we should do as pastors. Maybe that's the answer in leading churches. Please give. No, we don't want to. Burn them. You know, that sort of... Why does the worship go on for three and a half hours? Burn the musicians. Maybe it should be something that, you know, the odd pastor just has at those fingertips just to use on rare... No, we won't go there. But, but you know what I mean. Let judgment fall. That's their sort of view. It's sort of, wait till Jerusalem sees us coming. We've burnt the Samaritans. When we arrive in Jerusalem, they'll know who we are. That sort of attitude. Do you know what's interesting about these two guys, the sons of thunder... James and John, that they had just spent three years under the nose of Jesus Christ and they still did not understand one atom about him. I want to suggest to you that you may have come this evening and you actually might have spent more than three years under the nose of Jesus Christ. You may have friends that are Christians. You may know your Bible. You may know this story better than I do. But do you know you still may be like James and John. Jesus is under your nose, but you do not yet know him personally. You don't know him personally. Now what does all that mean? It means first of all, that they had a mistaken view of Jesus' journey. And you have a mistaken view of Jesus' journey. You can have a mistaken view of life. If Jesus had come to execute judgment and to take up an earthly... Then, then that's why he called them sons of thunder. But he hadn't. He had come not to judge, but to save. To save. And that means there is a radically different way of following him. A radically different way. Here's the question, him. Here's the question that they had to answer. This was the very point that they were, the, a crucial point. Does following him mean deploying fire against the enemy in righteous indignation? Or does following him mean following him to Calvary, which leads to suffering and death? The answer is the whole of the New Testament is the second one. The surprise about Jesus is that he came to live a sacrificial life. And dying service before he would come to reign a second time in glory. And here's the surprise. 
Here's the surprise. If you are going to follow Jesus, if you're going to follow him for the rest of your life, what it means is that you need to die before you can reign in glory. To follow Jesus means you will lose your life, but you will gain eternal life. And what Jesus was teaching James and John and what they had to learn was, and what we need to learn is that Jesus' journey to Jerusalem is our journey too to Jerusalem. It's something that we share. And if he sets his face towards Jerusalem to die, then if I'm going to experience the glory and be as it was, the Bible says, in Christ, then I need to also die to me. I need to die to me. Jesus suffered so much and died in our place. What for? I know, so that Christians can go to the top of the class. No. Skip all the exams. No. He suffered and died so that you might have comfort. No. He suffered and died so that you could be highly esteemed. No. He would give up treasure in heaven so that you can experience treasure on earth. No. He bought the kingdom and paid for your entrance into it so that you can have all the earthly privileges. No. Luke chapter 9 and verses 23 and 24 says this, If any man would come and follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I could tell you it's the easiest thing in the world to become a Christian. Just make the decision. Yeah, you can make the decision. God might be speaking to you even now about him and what Jesus did on the cross. But I would be a fool to not tell you that the entrance into the kingdom of God is by losing your life and laying it down so that you can gain it. When, Jerusalem, when Jesus set his face to, and, and began to walk towards Calvary, He was not merely taking our place. He was setting a pattern. He's both our substitute and our pattern. It will cost you to become a Christian. But you will gain eternal life. I'm finished. I want to close on a personal word about myself. Do you know, I've preached at countless baptisms... (laughs) Uh, largely uh, to groups of people that I don't really know. So it's quite scary for me. Before that, I've usually prayed as earnestly as a guy from Wolverhampton can pray that people would be saved. I have given invitations in different ways, shapes and forms over the years. I've done the hands-up job, the come-to-the-front job, the bow-your-head job, that sort of thing. Come and speak to me afterwards job, sign the ticket and put it in the box job. Done all of those. Well, what about the sermons that you've preached about Jesus Christ? I, I don't know. I really don't know. I just pray that God will continue to use them. But I don't know. 
But I have to say this. Every time they, I have preached a sermon, I have had fresh revelation again of what Jesus Christ did for me. His truth in his word, his taking away of my sin, his dealing with my guilt, his dying in my place, his giving me the hope of his eternal life, his presence with me, the gift of the Holy Spirit, his privileges where God, he has broken into my life and my church. His outstanding beauty. And one conclusion that I come to time after time after time is if you don't respond to Christ, that is between you and God. But in the preparation, I learned one thing. I love Jesus Christ more than I did when I began the preparation. Because I look at this outstanding man and what he did for me. And I think, you can preach and people don't respond. But I know this, that I have met with him in my preparation. And that is good enough for me. And as I'm leading to this, I'm making up my own mind, Nigel. Come on, you're a guy who's leading a church. Are you prepared to follow in his footsteps on the Calvary Road, setting your face towards Jerusalem? And I have to say again, yeah. Yeah, I'm prepared to do that. But do you know, I'd love you to come with me. Why don't you come with me? Why don't you start walking alone? Why don't you start walking independently and come? Come. Come and join the Calvary Road. I won't fool you or dupe you. The cost of following Jesus will be your life. But in losing your life, you will gain the the gift of eternal life. And if Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, then so should I. And actually, so should you. Amen. Amen. This is how I'm going to work it, because we've done this several times before. As I've said, we've had the boxes, the hands up, the come to the front, and all that sort of stuff. At the end of this service, if you would like to know more about Jesus Christ or give your life to him, I'll be prepared to pray with you. But here he comes. I'm not going to scan and look for a hand. You've got to come and find me. Because you've got to begin that Calvary road. So come and find me. And it will be a joy to be able to uh, pray with you and share with you about what it means to become a Christian. Okay, we've come to that point uh, where somebody's going to get wet and it's not going to be me. So what does it mean then to, uh, to baptise Andrew? Well, we've said to Andrew, it's a, it's a fiver to go down. It's, it's free to go down, but it's a fiver to come back. And the older you get, the more the, it costs you to come up. So, uh, so how old are you, Andrew? Twelve. Twelve. Okay, it's twelve quid then. <laughs> okay. And you, don't, you can't ask your dad for that. You've got to do jobs for that, Okay. But the word baptise means to immerse or to dip or to plunge. And when something is baptised, it's pushed under the water before emerging again. So actually in Greek terminology, if somebody put down an anchor and pulled it up again, they actually baptise the anchor. 
There you go. But why do we have a pool and not a bowl of water? Well, I'll try and explain that to you. I don't have a bowl of water at the front. We can do a bowl of water, but we don't have one. And some of the reasons is this, is that it says in the Bible that Jesus was baptised by John, and he did that as an example. He was baptised in the Jordan. Why? So he sets us a wonderful example. I want to follow Jesus, so I want to do what he did. But Jesus also, before he went back to heaven, said to his disciples, this is the way that I want you to do church. And one of the things he said to them is, part of doing church means that you'll baptise people. So we say, okay, we'll do that, Lord. We'll be obedient. And some of the books in the New Testament explain that what what baptism does is it explains what the Bible calls the gospel. So it explains what Jesus did on the cross. So Jesus died and he rose again. It's symbolic of that. So when Andrew goes down, it's symbolic of Jesus' death. When he comes up and rises again, it's symbolic of Jesus' resurrection. But it also portrays what has happened. So it means that one day, God broke into a person's life and they became a Christian on that day. The Bible says that they became a new creation. So what happens is that one day, they died. And then the next day, they rose again. Tonight's not going to make them a Christian. The Bible says that you believe and that you're baptised. But is it just symbolic? Is it just a pattern? Well, no. I suppose yes and no. Because what happened with with Jesus is that he heard God speak and the Spirit descended on him. And we're going to believe, Andrew, that God is not just going to be, well, I just did this, but actually that God's going to speak to you. God's going to give you, speak to you and give you things that will hold you instead for the rest of your life. And if you went around this room and asked people, you know, when you were baptised, did people say anything? Or you'll find there'll be a huge amount of people that will remember scriptures and things like that that they had at their baptism and treasure them even to this day. Is this holy water? I'm afraid not because I filled it. And I know what was underneath here. And usually, actually, baptisms are in public. In the past, they used to be in rivers and seas. So we could have done it in the D, if you'd have liked. What we could have done is dropped you in at Chester and picked you up in Bangarondi, (laughs) dropped you off a bridge in the name of the Father, Son, and we could have run down the other end, okay? So that would have been best. But actually, they are public. So they should be public because it is when we baptize people, we baptize them in confession of their faith. So it's good to do that public. So, in confession of your faith, Andrew, would you like to come here? He's ner- are you nervous? Okay, would you like to give him a round of applause? <laughs>